Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. This episode is brought to you by Blast Motion. Blast Motion is a bat sensor that you put on the end of your bat. It tracks how fast you're swinging your bat, bat speed, how long you're on playing with the pitch for, on playing efficiency, time to contact, how quickly you get your bat into the zone. It's a really cool product. I've been using it for several years now, and it's they're doing something really cool at Blast where essentially you're going to get it right now at 50% off the normal retail price. So if you type in code PJB25, you're actually going to get 50% off and get it for $75 versus the regular $150. Uh, so make sure to go check that out, blastmotion.com, coupon code PJB25. 50% off. On this episode, we have Michael Early. Michael is currently the hitting coach at Arizona State University. He actually played college baseball at Indiana for Tracy Smith, who's now his head coach at Arizona State. So you can kind of see kind of see the connection there and, and, and love kind of the coaching trees and just it's very cool to see how small the baseball world is. Goes to show you again that even though you, you may be playing for a coach right now, that could get you a job later on. So make sure you're a good person because that really does play a big role um, in your your further career path, whatever that may be, in baseball or out of baseball. So in this episode, we get into, A, a lot of hitting. Michael's currently a hitting coach. I'm a hitting coach. But we also talk a little bit about some college recruiting. Michael gives some awesome advice on college recruiting. He says specifically what he wants to see from a college recruiting video standpoint, which is something I get questions on all the time and I don't always know the answer to. So it's I'm really glad now that I, I have uh, some some real hard evidence on what a college coach, especially for a hitting coach, wants to see out of a recruiting video. We go over game planning. What happens uh, when a pitcher is not actually doing what the scouting report says he's supposed to do? How do you make adjustments on the fly in, in a situation like that? What do they specifically do at Arizona State in the offseason? How does he help prepare his hitters? They just had the number one overall pick, Spencer Torkelson, and he talks a little bit about how he coaches him versus everyone else. And he, he explains why he does it that way and it makes sense um, um, when you do listen in this episode so I love this conversation I love talking hitting because I am a hitting coach but I also love learning about the recruiting process so I can help out some of the players I work with back home so ladies and gentlemen here is Michael Early All right, we are now live um, with Michael Early, who's the hitting coach at Arizona State University. Um, Michael, thanks for coming on today, man. Hey, man, thanks for having me. Excited to get going, talk some hitting. Absolutely. So you're you're from Indiana, um, went to IU. I'm in I'm in Ohio, so we're we're both Midwestern guys. What was what was a transition like from moving from Indiana to Arizona? Because it's I mean completely different weather and everything. Was that weird at all, or was did you just like it from the beginning? It was a little, I was out here a little uh, for spring training, but I moved out here in the middle of July. So it was definitely different. I, I came out and it was probably 115. So they were like, don't worry, it gets better. Because July when it's 115, it's 100 at night. 
And most of the time it's paradise here, but good thing we don't play any baseball here in July. Well, I mean, it's about one, it's over a hundred right now, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's still warm now, but at night, at least it's getting down to mid seventies or eighties. So it's not, you can go outside, it's not miserable. I mean, the heat of the summer, man, uh, it's, it gets tough sometimes. Uh, I um, can imagine. So tough on my uh, utility bill, mainly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if your AC is not working, you're screwed. Oh yeah. No shot. <laughs> so, I mean, what were like leading up to you becoming a college baseball coach, you had a, a really good professional career, career and we were just talking off the air about how you, you even had a stint in independent baseball and played really well. Um, and I just looking at your numbers, I was surprised that you didn't get picked up by an MLB team um, after that 2015 year with the minors. Um, when was the point where you were able to put the, like hang up the spikes and just go full-blown coaching? Did it take a couple years for you to accept the fact that you weren't going to be able to play anymore? You know, I always wanted to coach, so that helped. I always, I mean, I always wanted to be a big leaguer. That was always the number one goal. But I always wanted to coach in college, and it was—it really was a dream of mine. Even if I would have got a chance to play in the big leagues, I still would have wanted to coach in college. So it wasn't too bad. Uh, my first year was a little tough because at that point, I still felt like I was better than everyone I was coaching, which was <laughs> weird. Like it, it was fun at times, though, jump in the cage and like hit a couple bombs and talk a little trash. But I, I never—it was never too tough, and it's gotten easier. I think as you become you get out of the game longer I think you become a better coach but I think initially it really helped the transition with just relatability with the players so you just mentioned there the longer you're out of the game like the better coach you become you've been a hitting coach now for several years just kind of looking back over your your history as a hitting coach what what would you say you've learned the most as a hitting coach I know that's a really broad question but um I just, I'm just kind of curious whether it's, you know, mental game, dealing with player. I just, I'm just kind of curious what you've learned so far. I think what I've learned the most is probably everyone is different. Like I've always said, like you can't put a blanket on hitting just to keep everyone warm. You have to be open to everyone's styles and you got to be willing to learn. I mean, this game is obviously changing quickly every day. People are getting smarter. So it's a combination of learning, but at the same time, sticking with what you know works. So some of the simplest stuff still work in this game and kind of stick into what you know. And at the same time, mixing in some of the newer stuff, technologies uh, when necessary. I think just being open to learn is really the biggest thing, but at the same time, being strong in your convictions. I think the, the unique and tough thing about college baseball is, is the time restriction in practice. And as someone, you know, like yourself, who's played professional baseball where you can go hit when, with a coach whenever you want or just, you know, practice whenever you essentially want to, whereas in college you can't. Do you feel as if players would develop even more if that restriction isn't there? Like, do you feel like it's tough for you to, like, develop each player to – his fullest because of that time restriction? I actually, what we've created here, I think what we created here works. So I think the time, obviously I would love a little more time, um, but we've really created a culture here of, of hitting on your own. And, you know, my, my saying is those who hit often hit often. So we always will border on maybe, maybe too many swings. You're never going to leave here thinking you didn't get enough. Um, 
So really with us, yes, obviously a little more time, but what we do, I think is differently is I start hitting it practices at three o'clock, which it usually is. I start my hitting groups at 12. So I'm out there for, depending on the time. So it's either 20 or 30 minutes at a time with three to four guys, you know, two to three hours leading up to practice. So that gives me way more time than if we put the hitting in practice and I'm dealing with 16 guys at once. Um, and I have really good help. So I have a director of hitting development analytics, Caleb Longley, who's unbelievable. So he's in my ear. Um, I have an undergrad assistant, David Greer, who's a great hitter. And then I, another our recruiting coordinator, Ben Greenspan, helps out too. So it's different in the sense for us because I have a lot of help. I have a lot of time. And then we have a brand new $5 million batting facility where you can hit off the machines on your own all the time. You can get access to it all the time. So it's a combination of what we do in practice. And these guys always have access to the facility, I think is why I think we've been different than most programs the last couple of years offensively. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the groups and, and not just, you know, hitting within the team setting because that can be extremely tough. And I found out that the hard way in spring training where, you know, everyone has really great ideas and everything. And then you have 160 guys and a couple hours to hit and let's see all those great ideas actually come into play now. And so when you're doing the, the, the small groups, right, like you said, starting at 12 o'clock, are there certain, constraints drills that you like to do because it's not like you can give a individual lesson to every single player um so could you expand on that like i'm just curious as what you guys like to do in terms of the group stuff but really at first the key to it is really grouping guys appropriately so there's a science to it. I always like to have an older guy in a group with a younger guy. And I like to try to, we put them in almost like these pods of like similar style of players. And then we put them in ultra competitive guy with a young guy. So uh, the grouping is key. It really is. So like when we have a young guy, we think is going to be good like this year. I'm making sure he's in the group with Spencer Corporal Center. He was with Hunter Bishop so he could see how they work. Um, and appropriately, lefty, righty, that really helps with the individual drill stuff. If you've got guys who have similar issues, it helps with the time. Now, sometimes that's not going to happen. People have different things. So that's why I have great guys helping me out. I can say, hey, David, take Dusty Garcia to the cage, do this, this, and this, bring him back and then we'll get going again. So really how you group the guys, their strengths, weaknesses, and then just the overall leadership and competitiveness of it is really key. So when you, uh, first of all, I really do like how you put them into buckets. And, and that's where I think that can be crucial, especially from a, a time standpoint, because you only have so much time. Are you guys big on movement stuff, movement prep? I know some people are big on that. Some just like to get in the cage and start just hitting right away and kind of talking out what they're doing well and not so well. What's your, what are your thoughts on, on doing some movement stuff, whether maybe that's during hitting when, when that person's not actually in the cage or just before. So we have a little station before anyone sees in the cage, you have to go through uh, almost like a mobility circuit. Our strength coach put together. Um, we have this thing called a K pulley that he feels it's almost like a core, core resistance type thing that really gets you moving and going. And then Caleb has his uh, Marv bands. 
um, where guys work on just certain stuff, getting their body going. So yeah, before they do anything, they do little movements and a lot of them kind of created their own, like their own style. So they're doing their own stuff with the bands or doing their own stuff with the med balls. I don't really like to overcoach that. I want, it's, it's like a warm up, but at the same time, I want them to do it. You know, maybe a guy's doing something. I have no idea what the heck he's doing, yeah. but for him, he loves it. It feels good. It makes him feel, it looks nothing like his swing, but it makes him feel like great. I'm yeah. all for it. So we don't try to overcoach in that aspect. Um, but we are big on the, everything here, man, is build up. Everything we do is build up. We rarely just jump in and get going. Like, so starting there on their own, uh, movement patterns, mobility is something you do before you ever step in the cage and you go from cage to the field. Do you group the players? I, before you start, do you have them all in a group and talk to them, explain what you guys are going to do that day? Do you let the older players kind of just coach and kind of just, you just facilitate? Like, how does that work? Yeah, so we try to, well, first of all, when they first come in, the first two or three days are super slow. I try to make sure a ton of the, a lot of the freshmen come in and they don't have a routine. They don't even know what a routine is. Like yeah. the first thing off the tee is their game swing. So we go over that and I really like to give them two or three days to kind of come up with their own just basic warm up. And then if they don't have one, I'm there to help. And then that warm up or that preparation changes once we see their game swing. So we add in, you know, if you need, if you need high tee, we feel like a high tee is something that would help you. We're going to add that into your pregame preparation. And a lot of those preps change, evolve with what you need. And a lot of guys, we have some guys who literally did the same thing for three years and it just works for them. And kudos to you for not changing that just to say that you changed it. And you know what I mean? Yeah, I know there's some hitting coaches out there who they always, I feel, I, it seems, wants to just put their hand on everything and, and change it just to, so that they leave their mark on it. So I think that's cool that you yeah. just mentioned how for three years they did the same thing and it worked, so I didn't bother them. Well, it was big this year because we had – so, I mean – People know, but we're going to probably have the first pick in the draft. And then we got two other guys go first or second round, another guy second or third round. And what I told those guys before the year, it's tough because if the same stuff works and the same stuff I'm saying works, why change? But when you hear the same guy saying the same thing for three years, sometimes, but all of them collectively are like, no, like stick to it, same stuff, same drills same terminology, make adjustments when we can. And the buy-in I've got has been great. I, th- I think anyone, if you, you could teach the wrong thing, honestly, and if guys buy in and go all in, they might have success. So buy-in is key and really giving those guys power and trust. And, um, but at the same time, holding them accountable when they need to be held accountable is really what all players want. Do you feel it's tough at a school like Arizona State where kids come in and have, have had a, a, a lot of success, I mean, wherever they've been at before, and then you come in and start and you kind of implement your own system, you know, the other players are, are doing their system as well. Do you feel it's tough to get that buy-in right away just because they've always had success? So I let them – so that's – yeah, I don't – I let them really fail or come to me first. So – 
if you're a freshman and you come in and you're raking and you look good and you go two months and you don't need my help, you're never going to hear a word from me. You're never going to hear a word from me because I don't care. Like, I just want to win. Like, that's the ultimate goal, a W. So, but ultimately in baseball, that happens. They're going to fail. So they always come to you. They really do. You're there for them. I think if you don't over push it, overstate things, uh, players will always come to you for help. And that's always been the philosophy. So, like I said, if you, you could come here for three years and I'll never say a word to you. If you don't need it and you're raking, I mean, hey, that's great. I'm yeah, well, I love that. I was reading an article that you uh, had some quotes in about Spencer uh, Torkelson and you talked about how there's a lot of other players who had the same amount of power as him and bat speed and everything. Um, Let me stop you real quick. I kind of, I kind of, there's not a lot who do. I don't okay, know. Okay. 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 Some. Okay. Go ahead. Did I, did I read that correctly though? Didn't you say? Yeah, I did. I did. Okay, and that okay. was wrong. Cause there's not a lot. Okay. There are some, but okay. sorry. Go ahead. So, all right. So there's some, there's some yeah. players who have uh, his type of power, but what separates him and I, hundred percent agree with with your statement and I've seen this too is is uh, between the ears it's the mental mental game it's you know kind of expecting the unexpected and then when you get screwed on certain pitches and certain counts how do you respond to that why do you think how how can we as coaches help more players get to that point and maybe we can never help them get to that level but we can always help them improve a little bit and so I'm wondering, A, did he always have that type of mental capability? Um, and then, B, how do you go about helping your other players with that too? He's, he's different and unique. He's, he's a one percenter. He's, you know what I mean? He's different. He, always, he had the capacity. He had the brain capacity, which you got to have. It was really just about helping him unlock it. And it, it wasn't hard. It was there. I saw it so early. He's, man, he's just the combination of competitive and almost like a hitting genius, which he's just not, he's just not normal. And I think for what has helped us though is having him, having him for the other guys to see and having other guys see how coachable someone that good is. I mean, I had to coach him he wanted coaching more than anyone. Like he asked more questions in meetings, everything, supporting what we did in meetings. And that, that I mean, that was huge. It was absolutely huge. And that helps with other guys. You, you can't, I don't think, I think you can, for guys' brains, you can try to fill whatever capacity and hitting their brain allows. And, and I think, some guys are just different. Like he was just something when he was born or coaching he had before he got here, something clicked. And like I said, he's a one percenter, but we have a lot of other guys who really unlock that brain power. And I think really it's the combination of what we do a good job here with our whole collective hitting staff is letting them be themselves, but at the same time kind of guiding them in the right direction. I think it's really all you can, can do. And I think, how you coach off their failures and the adjustments you make off their failures over time that starts to build and build and build. And that's when you get the product you want. Isn't it funny how it seems the, the best of the best always want to be coached more. I mean, I remember hearing Tom Brady and 
you know, I'm sure everyone saw the, the Michael Jordan last dance and Kobe Bryant and all these, all these elite level athletes want to be coached. Tim Duncan, a member with the Spurs and, and things like that. So I think in a case um, like Spencer's being at Arizona State, it can be a blessing and a curse if you have someone that talented. If they want to be coached really, really hard for kind of the, uh, the entire team's sake, it's a blessing, right? Because it, it just – now everyone else is bought in too. On the flip side, if he's not bought in, then it's a curse, and now everyone's kind of scrambling and running their own direction. Yeah, it, it's, it's tough. You, I mean, you can't – I don't know who said it. I, was, I don't know if it's like John Wooden or someone, but you, you can't treat them all the same, but you got to treat them all equally. Like, I can't, I can't coach Spencer Torkelson the same as I coached the last guy on the, on the bench. You know, I can't – I can't just – when you need to just really get on them, I can't do that to him in front of people. I'll do it to him in private. We've had plenty of those, but <laughs> at the same time though, he would be able to take it, but you understand that. Like you yeah. can't, can't coach them all the same. Um, his buy-in and some of the other guys I've had, like Carter Aldretti was here. He was the leader of this team. And I took over the hitting he's with the giants now. Um, he really helped me a ton because he was all in with what I was doing. And that was, that's huge. I mean, that's absolutely huge. And then same thing with, with Hunter Bishop, his last year, he really just dove in and said, I'm all in. And I think you get success when guys buy in. Speaking of the last guy on the bench, it's tough in the college realm because every game matters, you know, it's, it, it is about winning. And so you have to, put out the best nine every day, um, especially once conference starts. And so at Arizona State, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of those players from before have always been the star of stars. How do you deal with the playing time issue that happens everywhere? I mean, let's be honest, at every level. Um, but it's it's never easy and it's never – I don't know if there's really a right way, but um, what's how do you go about making sure that no one's – one guy sitting in the corner of the bench, you know, not happy. And then other guys are into it and that sort of a thing. It's really, it starts with communication, talking to them. Like, look, man, I know it sucks. You're not playing. I've been there, but you got to watch the game. You can get so much better just by watching the game, paying attention to the game um, and really working. And I think if you use that not playing as motivation, there's no greater there's no greater pill you can take out there to really make you want to be a better player than sitting on the bench. Um, for us, we've been lucky. All these kids that were juniors, they played right away. So they played right away as freshmen and sophomores, pretty much all of them. So when they were here as juniors, the freshmen who came in, they had a pretty good idea before they came in that they weren't going to play. And it's always easier to sit the bench when you're playing behind three first rounders and other draft picks. It, it makes it easy because when you come to Arizona State, you're really you're not really supposed to play as a freshman. You're really not. I mean it happens, but ideally you don't. So we did a really good job and our head coach did a really good job. Our development of those guys during the week and getting those guys live at bats and getting those guys into games. We had kids I think we had a kid, he didn't start a game at one point, the first, I don't know, 15 games, but he probably got in nine of them. Like that's huge. Like getting guys in when you can. And fortunately we started, we started off a little slow, but then we got in games where we 
great offense, you get leads, you get up on teams, you're able to get guys in. So I think really what you do with them in practice, but starting with communication on, look, this is the plan. This is what you're going to do this year to get better really helps. They just want to be talked to. If you don't say anything to them and they're just not playing, that's how you create division within the team. I remember when we played, I played at Xavier, we played Indiana when your head coach, Tracy Smith, was the head coach there too. It does seem as if he he's a coach who's willing to go outside the box at times and, you know, he'll put guys in certain positions and he'll give guys chances. And so it's not, I, I know I said earlier about, you know, this nine guys, but I, I do feel as if he is a coach who he'll give you a chance. I mean, he at will. some point, if you prove it in practice, like he'll give you a chance. He will. He's uh we usually have like seven solid guys in our lineup. And then every once in a while, you'll see the card and you'll be like, <laughs> but he, he usually hits it on the head because he sees something with the, he always asks me about the matchups about guys like, Hey, do you think so-and-so I'm like, I don't think he has a chance or this guy. And he's like, well, what about, you know, for example, I had a kid named Eric Tolman. Um, he's a two-way guy, which back to going outside the box, we probably recruit more two-way guys and give them an opportunity more than anyone. So I remember Eric last year, ironically enough, against Xavier, uh, they're throwing a hard righty. I think he went in the second or third round to the Diamondbacks. And Eric in practice that week was just turning around velo like it was no problem. Well, Eric gets in, bam, first at-bat double, second at-bat double, and really got us going, and he had no at-bats that year. And at the same time, that same kid started a game that year and hit two home runs in that game too. So, yes, he is willing to think outside the box. He will mix up the lineup anywhere from, hey, we're going to lead Torque off today, so we know at least one at-bat they have to pitch to him and really just kind of mess with the other team's pitching coach and his preparation. Yeah, and it, now that you mentioned uh, Torque leading off, I remember when Schorber was at Indiana, he, I think he had him lead off a few times too. And back then, I mean, that was several years ago, but I mean, I, there was analytics and all of that going on, but it wasn't as big of a deal now. And so when it comes to, to that stuff, it just, I just, I like hearing coaches think outside the box and seeing it and, um, you know, not being afraid to be different. I think that's pretty cool. I think you see more and more now too, um, with just the number of that bats, like mathematically, if you hit a guy, I remember the Giants back in the day, they moved Barry from four to three because they said it would give him like something like 80 more at bats in a season. Um, I think you see more now, the team's best hitter usually hits two hole. Yeah. Well, Coach, Coach Smith was doing that before anyone. He did that with Schwarber really before anyone. He would lead him off, but he started putting his best hitter in the two hole before before you saw Mike Trout doing it, before anyone was doing it, because it just made sense. Like, get your best guy to the plate as many times as possible. And then, honestly, if the bottom of your lineup is, is strong, lead that guy off and give him – hell, maybe he gets – if you can get Spencer Torkelson two more at-bats in a weekend series, that's great. Because every time he's not up or Hunter Bish was not up, we were counting how many times until we could get back around to him. That, that could, I mean, those two more at-bats, that could be another five or six runs, depending who's on base. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and just when, when that kid comes up to bat, you just, you just feel different. It's, it's yeah. exciting to watch. During, during games, and this is um, something that I, I've seen 
uh, numerous times where you look at scouting reports of pitchers and you go over, you know, what they've been doing, what, you know, what counts they throw certain pitches and um, they're kind of heat maps, if you will. Well, once the game starts, I mean, it, it can change so quickly. So how do you prepare your hitters to, you know, give them some background on the pitcher, but at the same time, what if he gets a blister that first inning and, you know, he can't throw that curveball anymore, or if he just doesn't have a certain pitch that day and he's, you know, living off of his fastball type of a thing. It's funny. So are you, are you familiar with synergy? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, synergy to me is like the best thing that's ever been invented on this earth. So we start, we got it last season and our first weekend we were playing Notre Dame and it was like I made the best scouting report of all time. Like they pitched exactly how the percentages. I was like, oh my gosh, man, we're going to hit 500. Well, what we had to realize was teams are going to make adjustments. And the biggest thing for us and blessing and a curse, when we play a team, they usually haven't played a lineup like ours. We, we never really face a team that has faced another explosive lineup. So what I had to make an adjustment on was, okay, this is what this guy does, but not, not being so like forceful with the plan. Like we had to be able to change on the fly. So we really changed how we gave the information. I really went to just, if there was outlier counts, like if I could find counts where, you know, percentages were in the eighties and nineties, okay, we're going to take advantage of those. But really it was just about showing them the pitch shape, the type of pitches, and, and the out pitch and not – because our pitching coach this year made a great point for me. He was like, man, you watch it so much, you see someone do everything. You see a pitcher throw a good breaking ball. You also see him throw a bad one. You see him throw one in the dirt. Well, you just told a guy three things. Really, if you can just show them the pitch shape, these guys are smart enough and good enough hitters where they can make those adjustments. And we started to do – it was about middle of last year, a really good job of – changing the plan on the fly, but at the same time, um, you don't want to change it in the first inning. Like stick with it, let's see, and if we need to make an adjustment, we will. But yeah, you made a good point. Nothing can mess a team up more than, you know, the starters and the bullpen. That happened this year, and I can't remember the team. Um, the starters in the bullpen, and he got hurt in the bullpen. It was something like that, or after the first inning. So I was like, okay, here's this guy, we haven't seen him. Sometimes you just gonna be like, who cares, man? Just go yeah. out there and he, he does a fastball, a changeup, a breaking ball. He generally is on this side of the plate. Let's just go up there and compete and be better than him. It's really, in the end, you just got to roll the balls out and play sometimes. What, do you, what are your thoughts on – I don't know, I'm, you might have seen this. This was a few years ago, but it was Pete Rose talking about how when he was struggling, he wouldn't move – he wouldn't change his swing. He would just move to different parts of the box and his stance. Do you ever recommend that to players if a pitcher is – you know, mainly out sitting away, 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 and they're, they struggle away? Or do you have them just kind of stick to, to where they're at um, and just kind of go from there and just wait, wait for him to make a mistake? No, we, we box adjust a lot. We okay. really – we um, – because in college baseball, and I think baseball in general, a pitcher is going to stick to his strengths as well. So, for instance, we, we call it – we'll see some good players, some crafty guys who stay at the bottom of the zone – and they don't leave the bottom of the zone. So I remember facing a guy from Fullerton last year, and 
we, we have this term, we say, make them elevate, make them elevate. Well, before the game, I said, you can't make this kid elevate because he's never going to elevate. He's yeah. either going to down or miss down. So he was like 88, 92, but we started off the game, we call it apex in the plate. So where we put our right foot at the, um, you know, the back of the, the plate, yeah. the, the point to get a little closer to him. And, and what I articulate to those guys, it doesn't matter if he's throwing 105, as long as we get, we're big on timing. If we get started on time, we do well. So by getting up in the front of the box, simply with a guy who keeps the ball down, if he does miss just a little bit, if you're up front to us, we think it's going to be a little higher than normal. It doesn't give him a chance to sink it. And at the same time, you know, if we got a guy who's a good cutter guy who's some slider after slider after slider. It's like we could say we're going to bully him. So if we say we're going to bully this guy, we're putting our toes on the chalk, we're splitting the plate. And you know what? If you want to try to beat us in, go ahead and make that pitch if you can, but we're going to take that side of the plate away because college baseball can, can be predictable and you got to be willing to give up on certain pitches and say, Hey, you know what? You might get blown up in, but he's not going to do, he's not going to do that consistently. And if he does, we'll make adjustments on that too. Do you feel that that, uh, that approach helps players, um, with their swing decisions because it maybe it helps them simplify what where they're looking for a ball versus just trying to hit protect all parts of the plate or and have the entire zone and what I like to tell players or say sometimes is the plate looks small and it, you know especially if you're on the mound but as a hitter that thing feel can feel huge at times that yeah. low and away pitch feels a mile away yeah yeah I, I think it does help a lot I think it helps simplify there's just in baseball really in the end if you can hit that fastball low and away to me your plate coverage you can cover and blanket a lot of pitches so I think when you give when you can find certain guys a certain outliers on where they throw and simplify the game for guys yeah I think especially with elite level hitters they can adjust like that and they can take advantage of of those pitches and also it limits them from chasing more pitches I believe one of the things I, I forgot to, to ask you before when we were talking about doing some group stuff is, you know, what, what are your thoughts on hitters y using machines and, and high velocity um, hitting and things like that? Um, I guess I go back and forth sometimes because I see it. I see the benefit, but then it's at the same time, I see really freaking good hitters hate it and not do well on it either. So right. I'm just wondering what, what you guys think what your thoughts on it are. So my whole philosophy and what I came up with is I came up with two terms. We call it comfort days and disruption days. So on your typical disruption day, our goal is you want 40 to 50% success in those rounds. And you never want to crush guys. Like I think people do the velo machine and they make it way too hard. Like if, if you put it, if you're facing a guy who throws 95, and you set up the machine and hold the gun on it for it to come out at 95, it's absolutely <laughs> insane. Like, because there's that timing mechanism of the hole. There's also the spin rate, which I'll touch on here in a minute. Mike Trout so, can't even hit that, I bet. No, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So you, hitting is such failure-based. You have to fail to get better, but at the same time, you just cannot like just beat the crap out of them over and over again. So – you know, we try to make it game-like, and I like to go every other day. So we'll do offset machines. We always have slider machines set up. 
And if you articulate to the guys before and explain to them why we're doing it and what success is. So if you take a round of eight and real BP, you probably hit seven or eight balls. But if they know going in, I need to square up four of these balls. And if I get five, if I get six, you just kind of change what the goal is. If you change what the goal is, they don't get as upset. Yes, there are days where you got your guy, I hate the machine, I hate this, that, I can't get my timing, it's not realistic. And I go back to, okay, how realistic is hitting off the tee? And they're like, do we ever put the tee in the game? No, okay, it's not, it's different, but we're trying to make it harder than the game. So when you get into the game, it's either easier or it's you know something you can handle. And we go back and forth though. So let's say we play on Friday, we're off on Monday. Tuesday, they're just getting back into the week. It's gonna be an easier day. Wednesday and maybe Thursday, we're gonna crush them. Like it's gonna be a tough, challenging day. We're gonna set the machine up. We got the guy's spin rate. We're gonna put it on that spin rate, things like that. And then either Thursday maybe or Friday, that's just feel good. Like on a game day, we're hitting off the tee, we're hitting front toss, we're taking regular BP, and we want you to feel like the best player on the planet. So you go from feeling like, ah, oh, man, I'm terrible. And then when you do that easy stuff, it is just, they, they, like some of our BPs, like after we do a VLO day and it's regular BP, it looks like home run derby, but guys aren't trying to. It's just easier for them. And then they feel good. And when they get in the game, and they feel unbelievable going into it, that really, that can take on a life of its own. You could be an awful hitter, awful mechanics, but if you think you're the best player on the planet, you have a chance to have success. A few things that, that caught my attention there. First off, I love how you talked about changing what success is in, in their minds, which I think is huge. And I remember um, being in Cincinnati, hearing Joey Votto talk about his version of success which is completely different because he's a little di a little bit he doesn't think really the same way as everybody else yeah. is you know for him it's it's he's looking for a certain pitch in a certain location and if he swings at it then that's success that's he views that as success versus just getting hits and things like that so I think that's brilliant on your part um, I also liked how you went over the the schedule the weekly schedule of you know Tuesdays so it's going to be you know get him back in and then Wednesday Thursday we're going to hit him hard it honestly reminds me a little bit of football where it's planned out, you know, each day of the week leading up to Sunday, but you guys are just kind of the weekend series too, if that makes sense. So I, I've never really heard it. I've never heard coaches say anything necessarily like that. And I'm not in the college game or anything like that, but I really like that. that I mean, it makes sense to me. My, uh, my honest, what I guess the analogy or whatever how I kind of came up with it was I'm a, I'm a big boxing fan. Okay. I'm a huge Floyd Mayweather. Fan. Floyd Mayweather. Stay with me. If you watch, so Floyd, if you watch his stuff, he has all these little mechanical things he does like the slow and he's just perfect at it. He's perfect at his slow stuff. That's his mechanics. He also has this thing. Um, he's actually gotten some trouble for it, but it, it, it's called the doghouse. So I know too much about Floyd Mayweather. So you have to. Oh, I've seen this. Me. I've seen the doghouse. Okay. He actually got in trouble with some people. But what the doghouse is, is you go in the ring and there's no rounds. You just fight until someone is too exhausted and they make it harder than the boxing match. And then he goes back and he retunes whatever he did wrong in the high speed stuff. You retune it with the mechanical stuff. You feel good and you go back and do it again. 
So that was always, I was like, how can I attribute that to baseball? Cause it's similar. Like it's a similar, it's a battle. It's you versus someone else. So we need to be perfect in our slow stuff, perfect in our mechanics, go do the full speed, see how we do, take all the wrong we did from the full speed. Now we'll go back to our slow stuff. We'll fix it there. And it's just really about a balancing act of that. So I, being a, a big boxing fan, I always tried to find things that were similar because, and just to kind of make it fun. I mean, if you do, I think, I think fun and cool stuff sometimes helps guys uh, stay engaged. I just wrote down doghouse. So I'm going to go send some of our hitters, uh, the Floyd Mayweather. I think it was like the 24 seven all access or uh, something like yeah. that. Well, then he did, he later got in trouble. I'm pretty sure by the boxing commission because someone got, got hurt in the doghouse. So no one's getting hurt when we, we jump <laughs> into the failure stuff. Their feelings might get hurt a little bit, but we try to make them feel better the next day. That's awesome. And I love that. I tell you what, I, I was really disappointed for, um, for you guys this year just because with everything getting cut short um because it really seemed like you guys were going to be able to do something pretty special I guess I it's stating the obvious but I mean how disappointed were what were your uh, players with everything that that kind of transpired with their season getting cut short and everything they were crushed I mean we were all were we were all crushed I mean I, there's there's obviously perspective in life and there's way other things that mean more than baseball but at the same time, when you're a baseball guy and this is what you do and this is close to your everything besides your family, it's, it was devastating. And they were, they were upset because it started off like, okay, we're going to be – one day it was the weekend's canceled. Next day it was like, okay, we're definitely off for a month. And then you're in the back of your head. I saw once the NBA season got put on hold, I was like, we're done. And it was really – I honestly, man, when I found out, I, I cried. I have no shame. Like, I, I saw we weren't playing. I got the call, and I got off the phone, and my emotions took over because it's when you love something and you want to do it every day, and it's taken away, I think it's going to help us all in the end. But at, at that moment, it was tough. It's tough for me to even talk about now just because when it's your life, it's your life. So it's adjustment for everyone. They were crushed. We were all crushed. Well, you put so much time in. I mean, I just think of, of all the hours you guys put in just just leading up to this season. I mean, back in last summer, the fall, the winter, right before the season starts when you get back on campus. And so many hours where it's just you and the coaching staff, not even around players, just preparing. And, um, yeah, there's definitely no shame at all in, in being disappointed. So with the players that are returning next year, are you like, have you been allowed to give them programs to do back at home or have you just kind of left it um, up to them or is it just more individualized? Like how, how have you been able or are you allowed to? Yeah, we're, there's not much we can do. And really it's just kind of been about, I mean, we're not going to start again until mid September. Yeah. So it goes back to don't overcoast, just go, go live your life, work out, get stronger there's nothing we're going to do to your swing right now that's going to help you in September. It's really just about, I mean, honestly, just being that right now, I'm just being their friend. Like we talk about stuff that's not baseball. Um, it's funny. I've had a couple guys call me and I have one kid, I'm not going to say his name, but I can hardly get off the phone with him. I'm like, all right, man, I got to go screaming, <laughs> but it, you, you love it. Like I just love hearing their voices and, and that's the part you miss. It's not in the games. It's everything else. It's being in the clubhouse. It's being, it's being with them. It's just hanging out. It's, you know, shooting the, you know what, and just 
and just chilling is, is one of the things you miss the most for sure. Yeah, there's so much downtime in baseball. I think that's what, what makes it fun in a sense because that's when you can kind of like like you were just talking about, you know, shooting the you-know-what with them and stuff. Um, I, I had read also about you that your first year at Arizona State, you went on the recruiting trail a little bit and kind of got accustomed to recruiting and on the West Coast. What was that like experience like? And do you still are you still able to get out and recruit at all? Or are you just mainly more so on campus now? Yeah, it was great. I, it was I kind of got a trial by fire, just kind of throw me out there and see what happens. And it, it's funny you you learn you learn how to. Um, you're watching a 16 year old kid, you got to learn how to project a little bit. And the more you do it, you can see. So if you see a guy, let's say you see a guy who's 16, 17, he's not going to your school, but you see another big school he's going to. And then once he develops, you see him in college, you're like, okay, I was right about this, this, that really helps. It's really the trial and error. Um, for me now, no, I don't recruit off campus, but with the success we've had in hitting, my job has really changed. I'm heavily involved in the recruiting aspect. So if we have a hitter, we're recruiting, they're, they're in touch with me a lot before they commit. They meet with me a lot before they commit. And it's really unique here. I've, I have more, I don't want to say the word is, you know, I'm technically the volunteer, but I've been given a lot of autonomy with the hitting. And I'm in a really unique situation where I'm not doing your typical volunteers work just because I'm at a bigger school and it allows me allows me to do that so I'm heavily involved especially on campus or on the phone with guys just because the success we've had in hitting guys want to come here and hit and and I, and I love talking hitting about them and kind of selling them what's changed though is at first I had to kind of sell them what we do now when you have guys who've had this much success you're kind of just like hey here are the numbers yeah kind of let it speak for yourself because it can be a little uncomfortable selling yourself. I, I really do not like, I mean, when recruiting or a job interview or I get uncomfortable writing out a resume saying that I coach Hunter Bishop and Spencer Torkelson because I, it's just not why I do it, but it is part of it. So after guys have success, it makes it easier because the program really starts to sell itself. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's a good point. I, I think it shows humility too, that you, or feel a little uncomfortable kind of talking about yourself being the coach um, as well of some, of some bigger stars and things um, like that. Now, when it comes to the recruiting hitters, you said you talked to a few hitter, you talked to the hitters a lot leading up to them actually committing. Does that also include you watching video of them? And if so, what are, are there certain things you're looking for on video? Yeah. So when you talk to a guy about their swing, I try to see as much as I can before because it's, you talk to a kid and you're literally talking like, Hey man, I love how, I love your leg lift. I love how you load your hands. Just out there. Like, how did you know that? I'm like, yeah. well, for one, that's my job. But, and, but at the same time recruiting, you will see little like errors and stuff, things you can fix. But when you're recruiting them, you try not to touch on that as much. Like you, I really just like to tell them what they do well. I think how that swing will fit into our program and how I think we can make it better. Try to stay more positive with it because you are recruiting them for a reason. You don't, you try not to recruit a guy with a lot of flaws. So if they have a couple, which everyone does, I don't, I don't like to touch on them as much going back to let them get here, let them fail, let them come to you and don't overcoach. 
Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, I think sometimes as coaches, we were designed to look for, you know, what's wrong first instead of, you know, let's make sure that, you know, they are people, they, they, they do need to be kind of told what they're doing well, which is, yeah, you're hundred percent right with that. Now, do you follow like PBR stuff? Like how, how do you know what hitters you want to come there or is that, or, or are you just given like, here's some guys we're interested in. Tell me what you think. Yeah, so it goes to like our recruiting coordinator, Ben Greenspan, does a great job of that. Our pitching coach, Jason Kelly. And then, you know, you have people out there who help you and our head coach. They get you the video. They tell you about the kid. They set that kind of thing up. They really preface you and prepare you on that kid before you talk to them. You never really go in blind. Um, so, yeah, it's really just – it's a team effort. It's just a, no one gets the credits. Like we're trying to win, whether it's with a recruit or a game. Um, our organization – is big on it does not matter who gets the credit because in the end and when it's a win for a recruiter a win for the game I think that's why we all collaborate and work really really well together and that's just uh you know kudos to our head coach Tracy Smith he's really created a you know we call it an ecosystem of winning where everyone has a job to do and everyone has to do their job and do it well and then when you're called on to do other jobs you take that job on whether it's me a couple of years ago when we were doing the batting facility, doing measurements on the field and stuff before, like, do you think I wanted to do that? No, but you know what? I did those measurements to the best of my ability. And then we got the hitting after. So it's really about putting your ego aside and really buying into what we call the ecosystem of winning, which he created a couple of years ago. And it's helped really catapult us to the next level. Yeah. I listened to his episode on ahead of the curve, actually. And he yeah. talked about formulating a business plan and yeah. it was a great episode of, you know, for those out there listening or watching this, I'd recommend um, listening to that one too. That was, I, I really enjoyed that one personally because of all the technology that is in hitting and in the recruiting kind of what we're talking about. Do you, do you want to see some of those numbers? I know I see like, PBR doing blast motion stuff now and where all the kids are having blast motion and I know trackman's at a lot of places and things like that do you do you want that or is it you don't really necessarily need that um, especially at the school that you're at I think it's a little bit of both like if you see a guy with a great swing and he's in high school and his exit velo is like 102 it's obviously going to jump out but at the same time you see a video of a kid taking an unrealistic swing off the tee and hitting it 107. I think it shows some raw strength and power, but if mechanically it doesn't fit, it doesn't work. So I think, yeah, I think outliers and things like that can really jump out and yes, they can help. But at the same time, sometimes you're just like, dude, I could, I could happy Gilmore of that thing and bust yeah. that thing to 105 if I wanted to too. So it's really about, um, some people do it better than others. I really wish I could uh, coach kids on how to make a recruiting video and, and what you want to see because they just don't really know. And there's a lot of people out there giving them bad advice. And so so on, on that point, I'm, this is perfect because I get this question too. And I don't, I mean, I'm not a college coach. What, what do you want to see? One, a recruiting video should be about 30 seconds long. Really? To me, 30, because you don't have the time to sit there and watch. You can get what I need to see done in 30 seconds. So if you're a shortstop, you can show me 15 swings. I believe it's Ed right. 15 swings, 10 to 15 ground balls in 30 to 45 seconds where 
you get videos sometimes they're like 15 minutes long and there's like slow motion stuff in them and music, which is cool. <laughs> like you get some good ones sometimes. Um, but really, I mean, it, just quick hit, like you can see the basic overall mechanics of a kid and how he plays the game in 30 to 45 seconds, if not less. I really do believe that. So some guys are, they, they think more is better and it's really not. It's like, send me something that's quick, quick video, because you know what? I get so many emails a day. I can only gotta, imagine how many emails you get a day. You got to play to your audience a little bit. You got to understand that we have families. We are coaching. We get a ton of emails. You send me something for 30 seconds, I can go, okay, or, or no. Either way, I think you can get it done in that amount of time. Okay, that's great advice. I'm definitely going to make sure I, I put that in as well when I write up about it. I never – I had heard people complaining about being too long, but that's a great point, 30 or 45 seconds. Now, I, I also would assume – you when you do look at those videos when when players do send them in do you look at videos that you've you have no idea you've never heard of these players before or is it something that you know you've had some sort of relationship with the player and they're sending you the video does that make sense yes no it's it's both it's both you'll have so you you rely a lot on uh other scouts or travel coaches um, guys you've built rapport with, relationships with, send you stuff. And then you do get the random ones. And, you know, honestly, for the most part, the random ones, it's usually not for you. Um, but it's tough. Arizona State, I mean, it's, it's tough to, it's tough right, to, right. you know. Yeah, you're getting, I mean, we're recruiting a different kind of kid. Like, not everyone fits here. Not everyone fits at other places. So, but then occasionally you'll get that one that just jumps out. It, it just jumps out to you and and that's why you do it if you might find one out of a hundred but that that's that's why you keep opening those emails because yeah. you know you might see some. i mean we committed a kid uh this year i saw in a video and we were like whoa who is that and i, I don't think i can say his name I'll, he's a kid from florida just because of his age but we got him to camp because of that video we were able to get him to camp through someone and you know, he's committed here now. And Whoa. That's just, yeah. he, he found him through a video. He sent a video, his coach sent a video, had no idea who the kid was. And we were like, wow, that is tremendous bad speed. Like I can coach bad speed and got him to camp and he's, he's committed to ASU because we saw him in a video and then we're able to get him in person. Wow. That's and our, cool. head coach, our head coach has committed guys off of videos before and those guys have worked out just because you know you do your background and you December just like oh great video come to ASU well your video you sent made us feel like we needed to do more research or due diligence on you and then that's how it worked out that's pretty neat I uh that's cool that even a, I mean a program like Arizona State's willing to commit kids not just off a of video but you know just it's kind of the same thing, leaving no stone unturned type of a thing, which I love. And it kind of piggybacks on your, your organization out there. I and mean, you guys just, no matter what, it, what it's going to take or, you know, where you have to look to find a good player, it makes, I mean, it's, I love it. It goes back to Tracy's background a little bit, not to cut you off. He, you know, he started at Miami Middletown and then was able to work up to Miami, Ohio. So it's just his philosophy. He, he used to have to, I guess, for lack of a better term, get in the weeds a little bit and think outside the box. Like you said before, he thinks outside the box. And 
because your leader thinks outside the box, you follow him and you learn to think outside the box. Like he's still, we're at ASU and if he sees, finds some balls over the fence, he's, he's not happy because he said those balls cost six to $7 a piece. And back when he was at this school, we didn't have any baseballs. So, you know, when you're, when your leader is getting behind your practice field fence where it's not good terrain and snakes and he's throwing out 20 or 30 home run balls. And so you, you, if he's doing it, you're going to do it too. So it really starts from the top. Michael, you've been awesome, man. I, I got a few more things I want to touch on before I let you go. And um, I know we mentioned earlier about uh, a couple times about, you know, what you do with your players. And I'm curious from a, a technology standpoint, do you utilize or do you have players utilize the sensors, uh, KVEST, anything like that? So we have Rapsodo, we have TrackMan, and my biggest thing is video. And, you know, we're in this era of technology and you almost feel like sometimes like you have to use it or you're behind. And, and I was like that for a while. It's like, we need this, we need that. But at the same time, I'm not afraid to say anymore that we don't get too boggled down in it. We really don't. We use the rap Soto. Um, I think there's tools on it that are great. Like I, I love the, there's a metric on it called, I think they call it ropes. So it's able to, it's something like how many balls you hit over a certain exit velo that's close to your best launch angle. And it's really about training efficiency. And it really just gives validity to what you see. So last year, like guys, who got within 10% of their highest exit velo at a launch angle of, you know, 22 to whatever percent were our three best hitters. So things like that, like training efficiency, I really like, but I think video is huge if you know what you're looking for. Um, and then we use TrackMan more so on the side of the pitcher we're going to face. So if I'm able to see, you know, certain spin rates or angles, and we're able to set the machine up to somewhat give them a little bit of the look or the feel. Um, we do do that. But at the same time, I don't want to say what other people do is overboard. But I think if you feel like you know the game and you know hitting, you can use that stuff to supplement and you don't have to lean on it as heavily. Yeah, you're searching for something that's not really there or yeah, I mean, without going any further, yeah, I, I, I understand what you're saying. I agree. I, I do think the video aspect is so huge, especially because players a lot of times are visual learners. And so I think um, anytime you can maybe just show them a video of, of themselves or of a big leaguer of a move they're, you know, you're trying to incorporate, it's going to hit home versus showing them a graph. I mean, right. and I love, I mean, I love all that stuff too, but maybe i i mean in you know in a college setting or in a team setting it's tough to pull off um and to do it right and then know what's what because we're all still trying to figure out nobody's mastered hitting yet i mean it's it because there's so many variables it's not like pitching where you can repeat the mechanics pretty much over and over again so i i mean i i'm on i'm on your side with knowing when to cut it off and you know what we right. have is enough we can still get guys better and I think here it's different I, I think when you're dealing with elite level hitters which I'm fortunate enough to deal with here and same with you at the pro ball level I found like a lot of my guys don't want that stuff like they don't want to do 
an exit velo challenge or they don't want they don't want it they really don't they don't I mean we got the rap soda going they, they think it's cool I think it drives the competition and you know you can get stuff I like you know I also like how like ball spin stuff yeah. and we're working changing a guy's finish or his lower body movements and I can show him hey look how the ball's spinning differently now but for the most part our guys they're not big into it so I try to I mean, do it. They want a little bit and at the same time incorporate it when I feel like it's appropriate. Yeah, I've been able to be around. I've been around some some big leaguers and watch them work and hit. And um, it's interesting how they hit with a specific purpose. And it's usually not to pull balls 110 miles an hour in the cage. I mean, it, it's, it really is kind of weird how similar a lot of them are. And they're, it just, it's specific. It's not usually 100% anything, at least in the cage, um, be, because there is something specific that they're working on. And then once they feel it and they, they kind of got it, then, they, then they're, they're done in the cage for that day. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, and for me too here, there's a weather aspect where I can hit outside on the field every single day. And I'm always like, if the ball goes over the fence, the ball goes over the fence. <laughs> I, I, if I were at a cold weather school where I was in the cage more, I would definitely lean on that technology way more. I would. I, I, would. I just think here, uh, the mix of the weather and the type of players I'm getting, it's more so like, hey, how can I make you better in-game cues, uh, drills like that? Because a lot of these guys, they're players already. Last question. This has been awesome. I've, I've had a lot of fun with this. Learned a lot. Um, I'm definitely stealing the doghouse. 30 to 45 seconds. Definitely going to put that in. Uh, comfort and disruption days. I mean, I, there's a lot of different um, good nuggets in here. Biggest pet peeve as a coach. What is your biggest pet peeve as a coach? Man. I'll, I'll give you one from a scouting port perspective okay. where you're dealing with kids here. So in college baseball, you'll get a, a right-handed pitcher who to left-handed hitters only throws fastball changeup. It happens, happens a ton. And then the right-handed hitters, you only throws fastball breaking ball. Well, you get the left-handed hitter who asks the right-handed hitter how his breaking ball was. I'm like, <laughs> dude, like he's thrown one breaking ball to hitters in the last two years. Like, I'm like, I get what you saw. He threw him a nasty banger. It was great. He's not throwing it to you. So that I'm just like, it kind of, it blows my mind where sometimes people, if someone ever says it's, it's not that simple, it usually is that simple. And I think it's the overcomplicated of hitting how people can do it. And then it just that I'm just like, come on, man. Like yeah. I on you right now, he's not thrown a breaking ball to a left-handed hitter in his college career. I don't <laughs> care how good he just threw one to that righty. Don't worry about it. So love that. that. I love that. A little bit. <laughs> I love it. Awesome. Mike. really appreciate you coming on today, man. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. It was, it was fun. Give me, give me something to do. I could talk hitting all day. So I really do appreciate your time and I love listening to your show. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball. Make sure to go subscribe on iTunes so you can stay up to date on the latest trends and techniques being taught in player development. Until next week, hope everyone stays safe.